1: And for details now, and more details about what's going on in Iraq, uh, we want to bring in Julian Lee, oil strategist for a Bloomberg First Word. And I encourage everyone to read his latest uh, column having to do with uh, tensions uh, with uh, Kurdish uh, separatists. And I'm just wondering, you know, uh, Julian, great to have you with us. It, it's kind of difficult to even put the nomenclature of this correctly because Kurdistan has a regional government and it just voted for full independence and yet Iraq's government doesn't want to have anything to do with this and now has launched an assault on the city of Kirkuk. I wonder if you could explain why this is relevant and, and what do you believe is going on behind the scenes?
3: Okay, well thank you for, for having me. I mean it's it's great to be on the show. Um, I think we have to, to sort of look at a little bit of history here. The city of Kirkuk has been disputed Um, between the Kurdish uh, government and the government in Baghdad really since the fall of Saddam Hussein and has been a a disputed city long before that Um, it's not in the Kurdish region of of Iraq it's just outside it so it it wasn't under uh, control of the Kurdish regional government when Uh, Iraqi forces fled northern Iraq in 2014 in the face of um, the insurgency from the so-called Islamic State. The Kurds uh, moved in. Kurdish uh, forces moved in to protect Kirkuk, protect surrounding oil fields, and effectively established de facto control over the city of Kurdistan and over uh, neighboring oil fields, uh, a couple of which subsequently were uh, taken over and managed by uh, a Kurdish company. Now that uh, the Islamic State has been kicked out of uh, northern Iraq, uh, the, the federal government wants the city of Kirkuk and wants those oil fields back. Um, and the the, Kur- the Kurdish referendum really has, has uh, thrown fuel on the fire um, because the Baghdad government doesn't want to see uh, Iraq split up. Uh, and indeed... Uh, nor do international governments, particularly those of, of Iraq's neighbors.
2: So, how much of this, uh, Julian, is a purely economic issue? Who gets control over these oil fields, and how important are uh, these oil fields strategically?
3: I think the issue is is certainly for for Iraqis and for Kurds is much bigger than just control of oil. It is about national destiny and and the shape of Iraq going forwards, the oil is undoubtedly important it's we're not talking huge volumes in terms of uh, the the total production of Iraq itself. Most of Iraq's oil production uh, comes from the south near the Persian Gulf they're exporting something over three million barrels a day uh, from the Persian Gulf. From northern Iraq, they're exporting about 600,000 barrels a day. So, you know, roughly a, a fifth of what they're exporting from the south. But the reason that it's important uh, is that it's delivered by pipeline directly to an export terminal on uh, Turkey's Mediterranean coast. That makes it um, a very close source of supply for Mediterranean refiners. Uh, and that is very attractive to them. So, the loss of this oil, or even a part of it, Uh, would, I think, cause uh, a dislocation for Mediterranean refiners as they look to um, replace this Kurdish and northern Iraqi oil with supplies from elsewhere. And that's where I think the real importance lies. Add to that the fact that we seem to be in a situation, again, where Middle Eastern geopolitics and the threat of of conflict, or indeed the actuality of conflict in oil-producing countries in the Middle East is starting to have an impact on prices. And what about the ability
1: of Iraqi oil producers to get the product to market?
3: Producers in the south of the country? In the north? Well, yeah, no, the the south is fine. Producers in the north have a big problem. Uh, The only way at the moment to get uh, oil out of uh, northern Iraq is through a Kurdish pipeline, which runs from the northern end of the Kirkuk field, which Kurdistan has operated for a decade and a half, Um, And that runs up to the Turkish border uh, and then across Turkey to a terminal on on Turkey's Mediterranean coast. That is the only way of getting oil out of northern Iraq in any significant quantity, whether that's Kurdish produced and controlled oil or oil that is produced and controlled by the national government. So everybody needs the pipeline to keep running.
2: Julian, real quick, uh, I'm trying to get an understanding of why we're seeing oil prices rise on this news. Is it because of the threat of a wider conflict, or is it because this could potentially take uh, oil offline?
3: I think it's it's that it could potentially take oil offline. It could take as much as 600,000 barrels a day. There doesn't seem to be Uh, Risk of the conflict spreading, although Turkey did threaten at the time of the referendum uh, that if if Kurdistan went ahead with independence, it could and would close the pipeline.
2: Julian Lee, thank you so much for joining us. And and your story was really terrific. I recommend everyone read it, Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly. Julian Lee, oil strategist for Bloomberg First Word and a Gadfly columnist. President Trump last week asked the U.S. Congress to toughen the terms of a 2015 Iranian nuclear agreement, saying it doesn't do enough to contain Iranian ambitions. Here to discuss is Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, also director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources and Geopolitics at the Institute for uh, Analysis of Global Security. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Can we just go over what the main issues are that President Trump Trump is responding to and uh, how widely his uh, skepticism about this deal uh, really is is shared.
4: First of all, uh, thank you for having me. First of all, President Trump is consistent. Uh, He criticized uh, the deal with Iran called JCPOA, the Obama era deal, uh, because uh, it is not a good deal for the United States. Uh, The deal allows Iran to continue uranium enrichment, uh, although this is uh, low-enriched uranium that is used in medical uh, research and in uh, civilian um, power stations. But the capacity can be easily upgraded uh, to um, create uh, the uranium for nuclear weapons. Secondly, the deal does not stop Iranian development of ballistic uh, missiles including we get indications of the development of ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, in the longer term. Uh, thirdly, the deal does nothing to stop Iran uh, from interfering uh, throughout the Middle East. Uh, Iran is a major supporter of the brutal regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. It uh, interferes in Yemen. It effectively pursues policy of surrounding Our ally, Saudi Arabia, both uh, from the north, it supports Qatar. Uh, It supports Shia uh, minority inside Saudi. It supports uh, Shia majority in Bahrain and the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So, both in terms of geopolitics, in terms of facts on the ground in the Middle East, and in terms of nuclear capability, the deal did not achieve U.S. strategic goals. And this is why Trump is not. Uh, scuppering it, but it is uh, the Trump administration is trying to push Iran to get to the negotiating table and to renegotiate the deal.
1: Is there any evidence, uh, Ariel, that the strategy that the Trump administration is employing has ever worked? Uh,
4: The strategy uh, has not been fully announced. Uh, I believe that decertifying Iran is a first step. But the strategy uh, has not been articulated. And if there is one, uh, they probably are not going to fully expose it uh, for public consumption. Uh, in a game with the Iranians, and I cracked Iran for decades, in the game with the Iranians, you don't show your cards, you keep your cards close to your chest. Iran is a place where the chess game was invented. Uh, granted, the Russians play the chess well, uh, but <laughs> the Iranians are the original authors. They're tough negotiators. They've been in the area for over 3,000 years, uh, even before uh, the uh, introduction uh, of Islam occupation by uh, the Arabs in the 7th century AD. Uh, So uh, these guys built a huge empire uh, that you remember from history, uh, clashed with ancient Greece and Rome, and fought with Greece and Rome for over uh, 1,000 years. So these are masters. Of geopolitical games we should not tell them what we're planning to do
2: well Ariel I want to talk a little bit about the broader reaction to President Trump's moves the European Union uh, is opposed to bringing uh, Iran back to the table and trying to renegotiate this they're hoping that US Congress keeps this nuclear agreement intact I'm just wondering you know there has been talk that perhaps uh, taking a hard line could actually be advantageous for Russia what's your take on how much political will there is to uh, really re- renegotiate this
4: uh the european uh, position the russian position and the chinese position are all going to be crucial uh in the strategy the u.s is pursuing and of course uh just as in case of north korea we would much rather uh, achieve our strategic goals through negotiations and not through war Uh, not through the use of force. Having said that, we still have a lot uh, of means short of the use of force, short of war, uh, including uh, banking and economic sanctions against terrorist organizations. uh, And the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, a mega terrorist organization that has an air force, uh, controls ballistic uh, missiles of Iran, is developing uh, the nuclear program. And has presence all over the world, so it's much bigger than Al Qaeda ever was. The IRGC finally, finally, was declared a terrorist organization, which it is, uh, and now the consequences to their businesses uh, are coming. Uh, the chickens are hum- coming home to roost. Ar- Ariel, let me, can- me
1: Ariel, let me just break in here because uh, all of sure. what, let let's just put all of what you said just aside for just just a second. And if you can, just focus on the idea that Iran is the second largest exporter of oil from OPEC. It's the world's fourth largest oil producer. What are the goals that you believe can be exchanged? I don't mean in terms of passing legislation in the United States or getting European allies to agree with the Trump administration's uh, yet-to-be-revealed uh, strategy. but what goals can be achieved in dealing with what you describe as a hostile or confrontational force that just happens to have 10% of the world's proven oil reserves and 15% of its gas?
4: Uh, you're putting your finger on um, a very important uh ge- economic, if you want, uh, issue, and that is a competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran. For uh, the regional dominance of the Middle East, the Saudis are Sunnis, the Iranians are Shia, uh, we can and we should uh, work with the Saudis um, to keep the oil prices down, but the Saudis are suffering, and the Saudis and the Russians are talking about cutting production. If production is cut, oil prices are going up, and our uh, shale producers are going to step in uh, so the oil prices uh, if we are looking at the, you know 55. 60 uh, marks, they may go up, and that will benefit Iran. So what can we do? Uh, We can and we should talk to main consumers uh, to prefer oil from the United States and from our allies from Canada, from Saudi, not from Iran, and keep Iranian oil off the markets and try to decrease their revenues.
1: All right, we're going to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us and giving us your thoughts. Ariel Cohen is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources, and Geopolitics at the IAGS.
5: Dot com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Well, where were you on October the 19th, 1987? Well, some people may not have been born by 1987, so therein lies the quandary when it comes time to at least remember Black Monday in 1987. So here to help us do so is Matt Maley. He is Managing Director and Equity Strategist at Miller-Tabak. He is on site at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Of course, Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061, Boston Newburyport, and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. Uh, Matt Maley, did you know that um, in 1980, 87 the uh, federal, the interest rate the prevailing interest rate was like eight and three quarters of a percent and a gallon of gasoline was 89 cents.
6: Eighty nine cents. Uh, heaven forbid. And then the rates were ever that high. I mean, geez, I'm, not, you know, I'm old enough to remember them when they were in the teens. In, indeed. That, indeed. So. Thank you.
1: Don't, <laughs> don't encourage me. Um, uh, when you were driving your Ford Escort down to uh, you know, the Solomon Brothers trading room, tell us a little bit about what it was like that day. And, and what are some of the things that you were put together to explain what happened on October the 19th, 1987?
6: Well, it was kind of a, a perfect storm, and we had, uh, you know, the, the stock market had been going up for a long time, and, uh, and, and you remember, the investors and, and managers alike uh, had all remembered the, uh, it, it, back then, had remembered the, the horrible bear market of the 1970s, and then, of course, they had all at least had some sort of a memory or, or learned very much from their parents of the Great Depression, so, geez, they were starting to get nervous uh, about this, uh, uh, this, this market having a big run, and you know, people on in the institutional side were, were, were uh, buying portfolio insurance, it we've all heard about, uh, but individual investors, again, uh, they also were worried because they had a lot of money in mutual funds. Then there was a third leg that a lot of people don't talk about, and that was uh, in the uh, takeover areas. I mean, Ivan Boski and these guys were the big stars back then on Wall Street, and the takeover stocks were highly, highly leveraged. And what happened, and a lot of people don't know, is, is that the real catalyst really came out of Washington, D.C. when uh, uh, the Ways and Means Committee came out and decided, they, well, at least they, they floated a trial balloon about changing the tax, the way these uh, takeovers would, or the debt on these takeovers would be taxed. And uh, these leveraged risk arbitrage guys uh, all started getting some margin calls, started selling in an aggressive way, and that kind of started the, uh, the, the whole thing rolling. Well, you know, the, the dominoes started falling after
5: that.
2: Matt, uh, your note is really tremendous. You also talk about that that uh, people were worried about longer-term interest rates rising, and they weren't as worried about the effect of rising yields and lower prices in their bond portfolios as much as they were about uh, potential takeover deals that would collapse due to tighter credit conditions. So uh, really putting things into perspective, Matt, before we delve too far uh, into history lane, can you draw any parallels from that period to today? Are we sort of setting ourselves up for a similar type of crash, or do you think that that was really a confluence? Of idiosyncratic events that will not be repeated today.
6: Well, uh, I, I, yes and no, or uh, both I guess, is the way to put it. I guess on the one yes. hand, I do, I do not think that we could have uh, a, a one-day <clears throat> disaster like that. We have all the you know, circuit breakers, and and the Fed is is is. Uh, you know, I think you know, all central banks are ready and willing to provide liquidity when, when it is needed. Uh, so I think I'd I very, very, very surprised. It would have to be some sort of a, a you know, huge black swan uh, uh, to cause a 20% or 30% move uh, in a, you know, just in a day or two uh, because a lot of people forget that it was actually about a 35% drop over several days if you, you know, all in. Uh, but uh, but at the same time, uh, we have a lot of, uh, you know whether it be, you know, we heard you know, a lot about these algos and these high-frequency traders. And of course, uh, in the ETFs, uh, these are all rules-based uh, investors. And when the market goes to a certain thing, they're going to automatically buy. Well, that's, we've, we've seen that in a nice way uh, in the last couple of years. But the flip side can happen as well. So at some point, uh, we're going to have another bear market. Bear markets have not been outlawed. I'm afraid, I am afraid that uh, it could be, a, a, again, not a crash over a couple, of period, a couple of days, but we could see a 20 or 25% move over just a few weeks, which is not something that the people will like very much.
2: Much. Matt, there are not circuit breakers in certain bond markets. Do you think that they're more susceptible to a crash? Well, that's that certainly the thing. I mean,
6: we, we, it was only just a, a year ago, or a year and a half ago, I should say, but one of the things that, you know, the real problem with, with the decline in oil prices that took place in the latter half of 2015 and very early 2016 was the almost crash uh, in the high-yield market. And uh, like you said, the, the, no, uh, no circuit breakers. Liquidity can be very uh, small there. Uh, so when you get that kind of uh, forced selling, I mean, that's the whole thing. Is that crashes only take place because of forced selling, not because of actual fundamental issues. And when you get highly leveraged uh, uh, fixed income markets uh, and they start to, uh, you know, the bids disappear, uh, it could cause serious problems. There's no question.
1: Matt, is there something about Friday trading and Monday trading that you can draw from history?
6: Well, the one thing is, I mean, it, it, it's funny, it's, it's, it's that, you know, people on Fridays are worried about, geez, I won't be able to get to my money, or not get to my money, or get, do a trade over, you know, for another couple of days. So sometimes they, you know, they panic a little bit on Fridays. And it's the same thing uh, on Mondays, Is because over the weekend, they start talking to each other. I mean, I literally, I mean, in 1987, that's kind of what happened. Uh, people started talking to each other and said, oh my gosh, the stock price was down 100 points. Back then, that was like unheard of. And people started panicking panicking, and they started calling 1-800-MUTUAL-FUND and redeeming their mutual funds. And so that's how the whole thing kind of started clicking in. And the, the thing is, to, is, today, I mean, there is a reason that the stock market is open the, 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 the Friday after the, uh, of, of Thanksgiving, because they don't want the market closed four days in a row. Because if that happens, if something big happens, panic, real panic, could sit in over four days. That's really the reason why they don't close the day after Thanksgiving. No other reason.
2: Matt Maley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly a fascinating note and I recommend people read it. Matt Maley is a managing director and equity strategist at Miller Tabak & Company. The holy grail in the food industry to create something that tastes decadent, but allows you to stay slim. Here to talk about uh, one development in the sugar industry is Iran Baniel, chief executive officer and president of Du Matok, which is based in Pitak Tikva in Israel. He is in our 1130 studios uh, today. And Iran, your company makes a sugar product that basically just enhances how we taste sugar, correct? Uh, rather, and reducing the amount of sugar included, rather than having an artificial substitute, correct? Can you tell us that a little about that? That is
7: absolutely correct. What we do is we load the sugar onto a carrier, a mineral, very common in food. A tiny little bit of mineral is enough to carry a whole lot of sugar, and when those clusters of sweetness arrive at the receptors they download the sugar at the receptors and cheating if you wish the receptors to report something which is miles sweeter than the amount of uh, sugar that you've put there
1: about a 40% reduction i believe at that, least that's uh, is that for sugar consumption if this were
7: introduced yes you have here i brought you Uh, Two examples, the jelly bellies are 50% sugar reduction and the chocolate is 30%, uh, just to show you, but we got complaint that the chocolate was still too sweet at 30% reduction. So we are continuing to reduce.
2: You know, one big question about the science behind reducing sugar is that if your body is expecting and experiencing a certain sweetness, it prepares for the calories that accompany it. Uh, In other words, if people eat something that is uh, calorie reduced, they may eat more afterwards to compensate for the lack of calories that they received for the amount of sugar. This is one uh, sort of complaint with artificial sweeteners. Uh, What have you found with respect to that?
7: It's interesting that you say that it's a wonderful question because what happens with our sugar <clears throat> is that sweetness is a teeny bit belated, but then lingers on. So you, de- you really won't reach out for the next bite so fast because you really get a full sugary uh, uh, impression, taste and satisfaction so it's actually a way to reduce even further the temptation to take too much uh so it's a lingering story too
1: give us an update on how far along you are in the the commercialization of this i know you raised what about eight a little bit more than eight million dollars recently uh you're announcing that where are you in the commercialization and does this then go into the food service industry perhaps in addition to just in a direct retail way?
7: We were very fortunate. We did very little PR, or it was usually to say, hey, we got some money invested in us or something. And what followed was an avalanche of emails to the website, etc. The whole world is looking for a sugar reduction solution which tastes great which doesn't have all those aftertaste, etc. So what happened is wherever we had early success, like with chocolate, without naming names, because obviously I can't, but I wouldn't exaggerate. I think if I say this startup from Israel is talking to over 60% of the sugar uh, of the um, uh, chocolate industry in the world, and I'm meaning all the big ones. Well, you
1: have a big, you have an ex Nestle uh, Nespresso uh, executive as part of your executive team, I believe.
7: That is true.
2: So, how much more expensive is it to produce uh, these chemicals that have sugar on them that are uh, that, that are expressed as sweeter?
7: I don't terribly uh, go for the expression chemicals because it sounds like, oh, you know. We are using a mineral, and the mineral is the most common mineral on Earth. Uh,
2: I love I love this, by the way. You know, everything that we have is chemicals, right? I mean, they are chemicals coursing through our bodies, but it has taken on a sort of negative connotation. So, we'll call it a mineral. Okay, so mineral with sweetener on it. Yeah,
7: yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, what happens is that we don't have one, let's say, sucrose, the normal table sugar. Not one we've got three three different models they differ by the surface of the uh, mineral that we use and they are better each for certain categories of applications so we've got our sugar which works marvelously in in chocolate dry applications basically uh, and we have our um, sugar that works great in baked goods and we talked to some of the giants there as well. Uh, We have more difficulties with uh, sodas, Uh, obviously the sugar breaks the tongue, Uh, sodas are water and and, uh, we are less effective in sodas.
1: I want to thank you very much for coming in and uh, enlightening us. Uh, Eran Banyel is the chief executive officer and the president of Doumatok. That is D-O-U-X-M-A-T-O-K.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.